Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, Ruth chapter three. Finished up Ruth chapter two last week and we're going to study chapter three this week. Um, may go a couple minutes long from when we usually get out, but see if you can hang in there. Now, before we get to chapter 3, I want to review just a bit and get our bearings. Because we're about to enter into the second great theological principle that's demonstrated by Ruth. The principle of the role of the kinsman redeemer in God's plan of redemption for the world. Now, of course, we're going to read the entire third chapter of Ruth here in just a moment. But I want to tell you that in a nutshell, chapter 3 begins with Naomi instructing her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to visit Boaz and attempt to get him to marry her on the grounds that Boaz is her redeemer. Now, Ruth did as Naomi instructed and Boaz responded just as the two widows had hoped he would. But Boaz also told Ruth that there was another family, Goel, another family redeemer in Bethlehem, who was a little bit nearer relative to Elimelech than he was, than Boaz was, and that it was only proper protocol to give that nearer relative the first shot at performing the duties of the Goel. Thus, Boaz gave Ruth all the grain she could ever hope to carry as sort of a gift of uh, sealing their agreement, sends her home to Naomi to await the outcome of his meeting with this nearer relative. Now, all this is pretty straightforward on the surface. But underneath it all, in order for us to truly understand the advice that we're going to read about Naomi giving to Ruth and that Ruth faithfully carried out, we need to get both the historical and the theological aspects of the event, this event in their proper perspective. And we have to also grasp the very real legal ramifications. That is, legal from a Jewish cultural perspective. These legal ramifications that were in play and in the process of being satisfied. And everything that's going to go on here now in chapters 3 and 4. So hang in there with me as I give you some foundation for studying these final two chapters of Ruth. Now, in the Jewish thought of that day, and in fact, of course, it was completely in harmony with the scriptures, Yehovah was the true and ultimate owner of the land where the Hebrew people had settled, the former land of Canaan. And by means of his covenant with Abraham, the Lord had given Israel the right to inherit this land. But, major but, this inheritance did not involve transference of ownership. First from the Canaanites to God, then from God to the Israelites. Rather, it was that Israel would only benefit from the use of the land that continued to belong to God. He did not turn over the ownership of the land to Israel. 
Now the use of the land had been divided up under the supervision of Joshua and Moses among the tribes and among the clans who formed the tribes. So it's important when we look at a map of, of uh, the 12 tribal territories here and the, and the way they're kind of outlined within their boundaries that we understand that there was a much further subdivision in, in, inside each of these major tribal boundaries all right, where the clans of each tribe were assigned uh, specific portions of, of territory uh, and a clan of course just being a subdivision of a tribe and then a family being a subdivision of a clan okay, so whoever possessed a certain tract of land was not allowed to sell it they couldn't part with it in any manner. Instead, it was intended that the family land remain part of the family and the clan and the tribe forever. Again, not as owners, but rather as authorized tenants, if you would, who lived on God's land. Now, should the Hebrew possessor of a piece of the promised land find himself or herself in a situation where they had to sell it usually on account of a financial disaster and actually did then it was the obligation of the nearest family relative to intercede and to purchase that land back they called it redeeming it right? in order that that land stay in the family and ultimately the clan now we find from the book of Leviticus that even if this land wasn't redeemed in a timely manner by the family Goel, family uh, uh, nearest relative, for whatever reason, then it still would eventually come back by means of the laws of Jubilee to the original family and clan who possessed it but lost it. Right? And then the laws of Jubilee said that no payment was necessary to the person who had purchased that land if the family waited until the Jubilee year that came around every 50 year cycle. Essentially, then, the land had been lost only temporarily and further, it wasn't so much lost that the land had been um, lost permanently. It's merely the use of the land that had been transferred to this new owner for a time. Big difference. Now this reality was reflected in the price that a new owner might pay for the land and then the price that a redeemer of that land would pay if he interceded and purchased it back. And that price was based not on the value of the tract of land but on the sale of the yearly produce that came from the land. Thus, no sale of land ever actually happened, at least not as we think of buying and selling property. Now, there was another custom of that era, very important to our story today, <coughs> called um, Leverate Marriage. And this was a law that had actually been written into the law of Moses. Now this was the marriage of a brother-in-law to the widowed wife of his brother. 
And the idea was that a Hebrew man who died without children, or more importantly, without a son, died without an heir. Thus it was the duty of the deceased man's brother to marry his sister-in-law, now widowed, and then to produce a son with her. This son that they produced, the first one, would not be considered as the son of this brother, this new brother, that's now the husband, but rather he would be seen as the son of that deceased man. Thus, his name, his family line, would then not become a dead end within the clan. The son produced from this levirate marriage then became the legal heir to the land that belonged to what was essentially biologically, you can follow this, his deceased uncle. Follow me with that? All right. I mean, he, it was. It was an uncle, essentially. Now, scripturally and legally speaking, levirate marriage and the obligations of a family redeemer, a fam- the family goel, are not connected. Okay? But, in the story of Ruth, we see that the two institutions of levirate marriage and the goel had at some point become, become bound together by Hebrew tradition. In other words, while the Torah technically only requires that it was a brother-in-law marries the childless widow of his deceased brother in order to produce an heir for him, at some point it became customary to include this kind of marriage obligation as one of the several duties of a goel, if circumstances demanded it. Thus, if there was no brother, let's say, of a deceased man. Or if there was a brother, but he refused to go through with a levirate marriage to the widow, right, then the family Goel would step in and accept that role, along with redeeming the land of the deceased in order so it remained in the family and the clan. You with me now on this? Thus, in this section of Ruth, that we're just about to read now, Elimelech, had possessed some portion of land in and around Bethlehem. But because both of Elimelech's sons had died, and their widows had produced no sons, there was no legal heir to the land. So it fell to Elimelech's wife, Naomi. Since she was poverty-stricken, she had to sell the land. She was too old to work the land. And Boaz, who was related distantly to Elimelech, was the family redeemer, the Goel, who Naomi hoped would accept the obligations attendant with being the family Goel. Now remember last week that there is a whole list of duties assigned to a Goel. And part of Naomi's hope was that Boaz would marry her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to give her a well-secured life, plus that Boaz would purchase the field, plus Boaz would give Ruth a son to carry on Machlon's family name. Machlon was, 
was Ruth's deceased husband. And then this son, a grandson of Naomi, would now become the needed heir for Elimelech. Pretty complex, isn't it? Well, it's only that way for us. Because this is not at all how Western society operates. And it seems foreign, if not downright immoral to us, the way this goes on. But this procedure that I just described to you was well understood by the ancient Hebrews. Everyone knew their roles and their rights and their duties in this process. Bottom line, if Boaz, the potential family Goel, would commit to marry Ruth, a whole series of problems would get solved in one bold stroke. Now, it's with all this that I've just told you in mind that we can now have our context for reading Ruth chapter 3. And we're going to be able to better understand Naomi's motives for instructing Ruth and the rather strange and bold actions that she wanted Ruth to take. So open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1059. 1059. We're going to read it all. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Now my daughter, I should be seeking security for you so that things will go well with you. Now, there's Boaz, our relative, You were with his girls. He's going to be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So bathe, anoint yourself, put on your good clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't reveal your presence to the man till he's finished eating and drinking. Then when he lies down, take note of where he's lying. Later, go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And she responded, I'll do everything you tell me. Well, she went down to the threshing floor and did everything as her mother-in-law had instructed her. And after Boaz was through eating and drinking and was feeling good, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of grain. And she stole in and uncovered his feet and lay down. And in the middle of the night, this man was startled and he turned over and there was a young woman lying at his feet. He asked, Who are you? And she answered, I'm your handmaid, Ruth. Spread your robe over your handmaid because you are a redeeming kinsman. He said, May Adonai bless you, my daughter. Your latest kindness is even greater than your first in that you didn't go after the young men, neither the rich ones nor the poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you everything you say. For all the city leaders among my people know that you are a woman of good character. Now it is true that I am a redeeming kinsman, but there is a redeemer who is a closer relative than I am. Stay tonight. If in the morning he will redeem you, fine. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, then as Adonai lives, I will redeem you. Now, lie down until morning. Well, she lay at his feet until morning, and then before uh, it was light enough that people could recognize each other, she got up. Because he said, no one should know that the woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring the shawl you are wearing and take hold of it. She held it while he put six measures of barley into it, and then he went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she asked, Who are you, my daughter? Uh, I'm sorry. Who are you, my daughter? Okay. And she told her everything the man had done for her. And then she added, He gave me these six measures of barley, because he said to me, You shouldn't return to your mother-in-law with nothing. 
And Naomi said, My daughter, just stay where you are until you learn how the matter comes out. For the man won't rest till he resolves this matter today. Well, some amount, some unrecorded amount of time passes between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, probably just a short time, all right, because we find that the threshing part of the harvest process is still ongoing. But Naomi hasn't had a chance yet to even ponder all the wonderful turn of fortunes she has suffered in the form of Ruth's providential meeting with Boaz, an elderly but quite well-to-do relative of Elimelech. And she has no interest in letting this amazing opportunity just pass her by. Well, after she's now formulated a plan, she starts up a conversation with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, that begins with, My daughter... Shall I not seek rest for you, so that it may be well with you? Our complete Jewish Bible has a better translation where it says, Shall I not seek security for you? See, the Hebrew word that is in most translations rendered as rest is Manoah. Okay? And in this context, Manoah means a place of rest. And the place that she's referring to is in the home of a new husband who can give Ruth safety and shelter and a well-secured life that generally at that time was only available to a woman by means of marriage. Now this bodes back to the first part of our story of Ruth when they were still in Moab. In chapter 1 of Ruth, verses 8 and 9, Naomi had prayed this prayer over her, over her two daughters-in-law. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Each of you go back to your mother's house. May Adonai show grace to you as you did to those who died and to me. May Adonai grant you security in the home of a new husband. Then she kissed them and they began weeping loudly. See, this is a wonderful example of how God works in concert with his followers to bring about his will. It had been a long time since Naomi had prayed for her for new husbands for her daughters-in-law. And one wonders if she even recalled that. But what a gracious and important lesson it is for us that God hears our prayers and answers them and sometimes even long after we've maybe forgotten we've even prayed them. Thus in this statement, Naomi is telling Ruth that what she is about to instruct her has Ruth's welfare as its target. And she tells Ruth in verse 2 that since Boaz is a family goel, that it's her intent to involve him as a solution to their predicament as poverty-stricken widows. And to remind us of the context of this multifaceted solution that she was seeking an answer for first how could she find a way to keep the name of her deceased husband Elimelech and his clan alive since he and both of his sons were dead how could the elderly Naomi properly protect the all important land inheritance that had been left in her trust since her husband died and there were no male heirs how could Ruth young with so much life yet to live be afforded a good and decent future and although it's not front and center but it's self-evident fourth 
How could Naomi find a means of support for herself in her old age since she had no sons to provide for? The answer to all of these challenges just might lie in Boaz if her plan works. Now one could ask, how is it that Naomi knew that Boaz was going to be at the threshing floor that night? In fact, would the farmers actually be doing winnowing after dark? Well, the winnowing process was very rudimentary in that day. A threshing floor was little more than a relatively area, uh, re- relatively flat area of ground that was in a place where a ble- breeze could blow by it. Okay? A surface of rock was preferable, but more often than not in Israel, it was, the threshing floor was just merely an area to where the soil had been tamped down very firmly until it was hard. After the stalks of grain were laid upon it and then pounded to loosen the heads from the stems, men and women with pitchforks would heave the stalks and all up into the air and the breeze would carry the lightest part of it, the straw, a distance away, while the heaviest part, the kernels of grain, would fall more or less straight down. The problem is that while some wind is required to make it Make the process work, it had to be the right amount. Too strong of a wind, and the grain blew away right along with the chafe and the straw. Too little wind, and everything that went up came right back down. It didn't separate. Well, the time of the year for the wheat harvest, which is the time of year we're talking about here in Ruth, was late summer, early fall. And it was pretty hot. The desert winds were always quite strong during the afternoon at that time of year but as the sun would move down towards the horizon the breeze would become gentle by dark it was dead calm now thus it really wasn't truly night time that Naomi was speaking of but rather dusk when Boaz was winnowing and that would have been the regular time that winnowing took place in the part of Judah where they were so Naomi wasn't clairvoyant nor has she been spying. She simply knew how winnowing operated in Bethlehem. Well, since the plan for Boaz was for Boaz to marry Ruth, wily old Naomi knew that step one was to make Ruth attractive to Boaz. So she instructs her to bathe and anoint herself and then put on good clothes. Now, there's a lot of commentary on this one verse that wants to paint a picture of a very pious and righteous Ruth taking on a ritual bath, a mikvah, anointing herself in oil as a spiritual matter, and then putting on a wedding dress. In fact, that's more or less been the standard Christian take for a long time. That's just not the case here. It's way off the mark. First, there is no religious ritual occurring here. The immersion is just a common bath meant to cleanse her body and remove the dirt, dust, and sweat. The anointing was not of a religious nature. It was just the application of scented oil, usually olive oil, to make her skin smooth and to apply a pleasing fragrance, so like a cheap perfume. Okay? And finally, 
the usual rendering, like our complete Jewish Bible, of Ruth putting on her good clothes is simply not a warranted translation. In fact, it goes completely against the plain meaning of it. Instead, Naomi, in her instruction to Ruth, just uses the more or less standard generic word for clothes, which is simla. Simla. Now, although simla was used as a general word for clothing, it was also the proper name of a certain kind of garment that is sometimes called a cape or a cloak or a mantle. Okay. It was an everyday garment of the common folk that more or less resembled a long blanket all right, that was worn around the waist and then one end got thrown over the shoulder and it would hang down. Okay. In fact, it often doubled as a blanket when they were sleeping. In no way does this indicate anything but everyday regular dress. So why would Naomi to tell her to put on clothing? I mean, was Ruth going to show up naked all right, to meet Boaz? Well, the sages have a pretty good solution for this that makes common sense. See, widows in that era stayed in mourning for a very long time. Sometimes they stayed in mourning until they were remarried. Okay. So the rabbis say that Naomi was telling Ruth it was time to put away her widow's clothes and to return to the standard simla, the regular everyday clothing of peasants. The notion that she would show up to meet Boaz in a wedding dress really doesn't fly. It would have been presumptuous beyond imagination to do something like that. And besides... A couple of poor widows wouldn't have the luxury of having good clothing, let alone a wedding dress just kind of sitting on a shelf in case it was needed. Okay, So who came up with this idea of a wedding dress is the meaning? Well, it was another one of those doctrines that comes from working with the New Testament and then going backwards with it. Okay, In other words, since Christianity has long and correctly held that Yeshua is the kinsman redeemer for all who believe, then the image of the saints as the brides of Messiah and of his brides coming to the wedding feast of the Lamb all gets applied in reverse to the story of Ruth. Thus, the reasoning is that Ruth must have put on a wedding dress since she was about to come into relationship with her kinsman redeemer. Not a chance. And this is a very good example of what happens when one tries to explain the Old Testament in the light of the New instead of the other way around. Now Ruth continues her instruction to Ruth telling her to stay out of Boaz's view but to take careful notice where he beds down for the night. Further, since it will be the end of the day and dark... Boaz will have completed his work and then dine and drink before retiring. Now, when this speaks of his drinking, it very likely includes wine because it just wasn't common parlance to break a meal down into the eating of solid food and drinking liquid if it was just water he was drinking. Okay, rather, drinking invariably refers to drinking alcoholic beverages and the context bears that out, by the way. Okay, Further, this doesn't in any way mean that he went to bed drunk. Okay? It just means that he was 
well off enough to afford some wine with his meals, something almost any Hebrew would have preferred if they had the money. Now, this though is where the instructions start to get a little bit dicey. Naomi tells Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet and lie down with him. Hmm. Now I'm sure most of you can't but have a little bit of an image of seduction in your minds about now. And you might be right, although it really probably wasn't to the extent that some have claimed that it was. See, here's the thing. The Bible can get very sensual and sexual at times. Sex was just a part of everyday life. And while modesty was always called for in God's people, they were also around farm animals all the time, and every child was familiar from an early age of the natural reproductive processes. And certainly, flirtations between men and women were open and common in biblical days that today might even be seen as crude and objectionable. I'm going to explain where I'm going with this a little bit later. Naomi's last words to Ruth were kind of odd. She says to her, once you get there, Boaz will tell you what to do. Hmm. And to this, Ruth promised to do everything that Naomi instructed her. Now, there's always been a question, theologically, about this little kabuki dance that Naomi tells Ruth she's to perform. As to whether this was a customary Hebrew thing in that day, or if it was just unique to this story. And the answer is, we really don't know. For sure, the whole purpose of this endeavor is for Ruth to make her her desire to marry Boaz very clear to him. I I think I'd get the message. But is this how engagement actually happened among the regular Jews of that era? There's no records to indicate any such thing. And although there are a couple of kind of similar scenes elsewhere in the Bible, like in Ezekiel 16 and 2 Samuel 12, they're not really in the same context. But on another level, while her going to Boaz and uncovering his feet and then laying down beside him may not have necessarily been usual, the purpose of proposing marriage on the grounds that Boaz is her goel is really what Naomi was referring to when she says that Boaz would then tell her what to do. That is, you see, let's not forget, Ruth was a Moabite. And she was unfamiliar with the Jewish ways. Even though most Middle Eastern societies, almost certainly the Moabites as well, had some kind of family redeemer custom that they followed, how each nation performed it would have been quite different. Naomi and Boaz thoroughly understood the roles and duties of a goel within Hebrew society and all the nuances of how somebody approached a potential goel for the help. Then there were the unique social intricacies that would all follow a certain protocol. Of these, Ruth knew little, if anything, since she was a foreigner. Therefore, while Naomi got the ball rolling sufficiently for Boaz to understand what was being 
asked of him, Ruth was then told to rely on Boaz to now take over and do logically and legally what would come next. And that depended, of course, on whether or not Boaz accepted Ruth's request of him or not. Therefore, as Naomi said, he'll tell you what to do. In other words, this whole thing's up to Boaz. Now, a little bit more will be done. It was getting dark. So Ruth left her mother-in-law and went to the threshing floor. And she did exactly what Naomi told her to do, fully trusting that Naomi not only knew what she was doing, but that it was honorable. And that it had Ruth's best interest in, in mind. Verse 8 says that Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was feeling good. Now, this is not talking about his general state of, be, of well-being. Okay, Boaz had a bit of a buzz on. Right? Due to downing a couple glasses of wine. Okay? Tired now and relaxed, he located himself at the end of a pile of grain, undoubtedly to make sure no one came to help themselves to the product of his day's work. And he fell asleep there. So Ruth now stole in quietly so as not to disturb his sleep, uncovered his feet, lay down next to him. Sometime later, in the middle of the night, something awakens Boaz. And he was startled to find a person lying next to him. Now, it was dark. He was drowsy. And so he blurts out, who's there? Ruth says, it's me. And when he spread his robe over her because he is her Goel. Man, let me tell you, there's a lot going on here. Alright, so let's kind of take this step by step. The most controversial aspect of this section is the part of Ruth uncovering his feet. Here's the controversy. It is that feet is an often used biblical idiom that refers to the genitals. Okay? Covering one's feet is also an idiom that is used at times to describe relieving yourself, going to the bathroom. The some scholars, primarily those who specialize in literary criticism techniques, believe that what Ruth did was to expose Boaz's genitals as an expression of her desire for, her, for him to marry her. And that maybe this was some heretofore unknown engagement practice. Wow. In fact, that line of thought has become a rather popular recent interpretation of the scene. But, more level-headed scholars, Jew and Gentile, make it clear there's just way too many problems associated with that approach to make this what was actually going on. So, so let's first dispel this view, this new view, that Ruth committed a very sexually provocative act <coughs> upon the slumbering and unsuspecting Boaz. Here's the thing. The Hebrew word that is usually rendered feet in the book of Ruth is margelot. Margelot. And in the entire Bible, that word is only used in three places in Ruth and once more in Daniel 10. And there it means legs, not feet. Margelot 
refers to a larger region of the body than merely feet. In fact, some scholars think that it basically means everything from the hips down. That is, legs and feet. The, the entire extremities. Rather than, say, hips, thighs, knees, it's just a way of expressing everything from the hips down. Okay. The usual Hebrew word, and there is one, for foot or feet throughout the Old Testament is regel. R-E-G-E-L. Regel. And indeed, we do find the, it's the word regel used in the idioms that refer to the genitals. Nowhere in the whole of the Bible do we find margalot, which is what's used here in Ruth, used that way. And this is, thus it is almost certainly inaccurate to translate margalot to be feet here in Ruth. It should be translated as legs. If you read the story, it makes a lot more sense. Thus we have Ruth uncovering Boaz's legs, not his feet, and lying there next to him as instructed by her mother-in-law and nothing more. Now, are there sexual overtones to all this? Oh yeah. The issue is to what degree? Now certainly, what man would go to bed alone only to be startled awake by a lovely young woman lying next to him and not get a little bit excited by this situation. Okay? If you're an older man like Boaz and this young thing sneaks into your bed, crawls under your blanket and essentially proposes marriage, well, that'll get your attention. Okay? But it seems that the author of this story intends it to, to kind of have this tone. Okay? After all, Ruth is trying to entice Boaz to marry her. And by all accounts, she is quite beautiful. Not only in character, but in appearance. So, what could be more normal than for her to make use of these natural gifts in a way that interests men? Let's also dispel this thought of an aggressive sexual action taken by, by Ruth upon Boaz as he sleeps by recalling the context and history of the Ruth narrative. Ruth and Boaz have shown themselves to be exemplary people. Devout, faithful to the God of Israel. Righteous, upright. Okay. Boaz has raved about how well known Ruth's high character is among the residents of Beit Lechem. And Boaz has been shown to be a kind man with only noble motives and intentions in everything he does. Except within the institution of marriage. For a woman to have looked upon an exposed man could bring her a terrible punishment. You recall that instance in the Torah when a wife helped her husband who was in a fight with another man by grabbing the genitals of her husband's opponent and what happened? She had her hand cut off for it. Okay, this, these, op- these sorts of things were not, were not tolerated. For Ruth to uncover a man's private parts would be nothing less than prostitution. Nothing less. So to accuse Ruth and Boaz of engaging in sexual activities that are strictly forbidden on a number of levels 
by the laws of Moses would be completely inconsistent with all we've learned about them encountered as the entire purpose and nature of the story. There's, there's a lot more that we're going to dissect about this nocturnal encounter here. All right, but let's stop here for today and we'll continue in chapter 3 next week.